Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hey, Candace. Hi, Katie. I am delighted for Katie today to share with you a bunch of news about one of her favorite historical figures. And we decided it was only fair that Katie should get to talk about her since I have spent probably hours yammering on and on about the greatness of Thomas Jefferson. She is a very fascinating lady, much like Marie Antoinette, which brought Candace and I together over this one. Um, but her name is Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, although she was born Georgiana Spencer. And if the name sounds familiar, that's because Princess Diana was one of her descendants. That's right. That's right. And many people say that the stories of Diana and Georgiana, alternately referred to as Georgina, are pretty similar. We see that the women suffer from uh, bulimia. They have sort of reckless lifestyles and engage in uh, questionable romantic pursuits. And these are criticisms that have been thrown at them. And perhaps the most poignant one is that Georgiana got a chance to redeem herself later in life, whereas Diana never got that chance because her life was cut so tragically short. And you may remember that the Duchess came out in the theaters, uh, what, a year ago? Two I years think ago? So, yeah. Not too, too long ago because it won an, an Oscar back in January for costume design. But I think a lot of press was drawn to the fact that these women led similar lives and perhaps people would be more interested in a period drama if they thought it would smack of Diana. Well, and Candace and I both owe a lot of our research to Amanda Foreman's book, The Duchess. But before we get too much into what she's done, maybe we'll start with her childhood. Georgiana was born in 1757 to the Earl and Countess Spencer, and they were one of the richest families in England. So her marital prospects were very much looked forward to. They had five houses. Her upbringing was very ladylike. She studied deportment and harp playing and drawing. Nothing too strenuous, but enough so she would be a polished young lady. And she met the Duke of Devonshire when she was 16 years old. And her mother didn't want her to get married too young because she'd had a love match of her own and she was really hoping for the same thing for Georgiana. But if you look at some of Georgiana's letters, you can tell a couple of things, one of which is that Georgiana was a people pleaser. Perhaps she had low self-esteem, but she wanted always to have her mother's praise lavished upon her. And when she met the Duke and she got the sense that this was a match people would regard very highly, she was pretty anxious for it to happen. She was excited to pursue him, or rather for him to pursue her, her hand in marriage. And his family, the Cavendishes, were another huge family in England. So uniting the two would be quite the big deal. And united they were. And uh, we mentioned that she was alternately termed or referred to as Georgiana and Georgina. And Georgina came to be because the Cavendishes had a rather affected way of speaking or drawling, as it were. And once they christened her Georgina, Georgina she was for the rest of her life. She was. And it's funny because members of the coterie of the Devonshires would affect that same sort of accent, just like Georgina did. Their marriage was the marriage of the year. She got married, I think, on her 17th birthday. um, And there were only five people present. Weddings then weren't a big affair. But they had it actually two days earlier than they were supposed to because they were afraid she was going to be mobbed paparazzi style on her way to the nuptials. 
and she quickly became a rather permanent fixture in newspapers. She was the source of much speculation and gossip, and she was the sort of girl who, if you knew her, you might have loved to hate her. I mean, she was beautiful, and she captured everyone's attention. She had all the right clothes, all the right hairstyle. She set the trends, and yet... She was so magnetic, you couldn't help but be drawn to her as a friend. Horace Walpole said that her youthful figure, flowing good nature, sense and lively modesty, and modest familiarity make her a phenomenon. Even though he didn't consider her a great beauty, she was still incredibly attractive and sexy. And other sources at the time say that she was a great beauty. So I wonder if she just had one of those faces where maybe if you got to know her a little bit better, she was incredibly attractive to you. They said the same thing about Marie Antoinette. Some people said she was a great beauty, and others said it was more her charisma. But despite beauty, questionable or not, or charisma, her husband didn't have a whole lot to do with her. And perhaps that could be explained by the fact that he already had a mistress tucked away somewhere. So, (laughs) And he was a lot like her father, kind of reserved and not very emotional. But um, as Amanda Foreman points out in her book, Georgina's father had... You know, this hidden core of sweetness. And she says that perhaps Georgina thought so did her husband, but he didn't. He wasn't a particularly nice man. And it's a story you may have heard time and time again. When a woman can't get the love and attention she needs, she turns to other pursuits. And in the case of Georgina, some of these were pretty self-destructive. She was living life at extremes for a while, and some of it wasn't her fault. When they first got married, she made 500 visits in three weeks to the notable lords and ladies of the area because that's what was expected. I I hate (laughs) returning calls. It's just too taxing after a long day. 500 visits is a lot. It makes me tired just thinking about it. (laughs) But she did it with grace and aplomb. She did, and she was very fashionable and very much the belle of society, the center of attention. Um, and with that came a gambling addiction because she was the head of her, the fast set in London, let's say. The and bright young people. It was the bright young people, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very wall. And what, what do you do when you sit around a gambling table? Well, you drink, maybe you dabble in drugs, you might overeat. She definitely had an addiction to opiates and when One of her relatives was saying that the problem with her living at extremes, she would go dancing for 10 days and never sleep, and then she would crash. And for the next 10 days, you know, she'd be in bed, unable to function, and she might blot it all out with a big dose of opiates, and eventually she'd get back on her feet and go back out, but it was the same thing. She couldn't figure out how to stay on that middle ground. Right, no sense of moderation. And this was unfortunate because for a gentlewoman of her stature in this time period, her primary responsibility was to produce an heir for the Cavendishes, for the Duke of Devonshire. And looking back now, we could attribute some of these early miscarriages to her lifestyle, the drinking, the drug-taking, the lack of sleep, and then the fast pace at which she lived and moved. Which is too bad for her because she could kind of use an heir as a bargaining chip to pay off some of her gambling debts. She really didn't like telling the Duke about how much she owed. And at one point she owed, I think the first time she really got into trouble, she owed something like $300,000 in today's money and she didn't want to tell her husband. But later, when these debts kept piling up, because she would get them paid off, she would talk to the Duke or talk to someone else, and the debts would be excused, and she would make you know a heartfelt resolution that it wouldn't happen again, and then you know soon enough she was in the hole again. Um, but once she had a son, 
she could use that as a bargaining chip with the Cavendishes. So at this point, you may be wondering, wow, what kind of person is this Katie Lambert who admires (laughs) such a gambler and drug taker? Katie, redeem Georgiana. Because she does. She has very many redeeming qualities. She does. She was very involved in politics. And actually, Candace, you can probably talk more about her role um, with the Whigs in England. Georgiana existed. I've, I've got to pick a consistent pronunciation. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm <laughs> erring on the side of the Spencers. And I guess I should be calling her the, the Cavendish Georgiana. But G, I'll call her G because many of her friends did. G was coming about and becoming more politically aware in a time when the Whig Party, we conceive of them as a party today, but the Tories and Whigs weren't necessarily political parties in the proper sense back then. Yeah. But alas, I digress. The point is, the Whigs were starting to support the idea of a constitutional monarchy. And they were, they were pro-America, weren't they? Like anti-slavery? Right. Around the time of the American Revolution. And... The idea of a constitutional monarchy is essentially that there is uh, limited say in the king's power over legislation. And it doesn't dispute the fact that the king gets the throne on the basis of inheritance, right. not like in a republic where a popular vote elects the leader. But it does say that there are some restrictions to what the king can do. And, for instance, the king could actually tap the prime minister, who he wanted to preside over the people, whereas the Whigs said that the House of Commons majority vote should decide the prime minister. So essentially it's a division between the royalists and a more liberal party who want more power granted to the people. And some marked debates that showed the Whigs' differences from the Tories were things like the abolition of slavery, which you mentioned. And also at this time, as we've mentioned in earlier podcasts, Britain was very much involved in India, and the Whigs wanted to see that kind of power curtailed, the power that they had over the people. And if you're wondering how politics would have appealed to someone like G, who was more known for her three-foot hair towers, uh, Marie Antoinette style with ostrich feathers in them. The queen actually had to ban ostrich feathers because people were paying obscene amounts of money for them. She got into politics because of Charles Fox. And Charles Fox was pretty much synonymous with the term Whig at this time. His greatest adversary was William Pitt, who was a royalist. And Fox was very much an advocate for the abolition of slavery. And he was also behind that India reform that I mentioned earlier. And his personality just clicked with G's, and they were instant friends. And she was not only a confidant to him, but some even suggest that they had a romantic partnership. Whether or not that's true, I think there's more doubt than agreement. But it was a thought that was on society, at least. And Fox also got she interested, I think, in reading and in learning. When she married the Duke, she was attempting to cater to his interests because he was so cold and uninterested. So she would get history books, you know, and try to bone up on his favorite areas so she could discuss it at dinner with him. Again, much like Marie Antoinette. Much like Stuart husband. does with me. It, it works. <laughs> it really does. Read history and I'll talk to you. <laughs> but Charles Fox is a hugely controversial figure, too, because around the time of the French Revolution and the genesis of that movement beginning in France, here's a man who who applauded when the Bastille fell, and he very much aligned his ideologies with the Jacobins, who promoted a constitutional monarchy. And he was slow and reluctant to retract 
that alignment, even after the Jacobins gave way to the radicalism of Robespierre, whom you may remember from the French Revolution podcast, just sort of devolved into this strange chaos of madness and godliness. And of course, there was so much bloodshed and madness in France. It was it was very damaging for any political party to align with them. And he also did some had some not so great ideas during the Regency crisis. Um, in 1788 and 1789, which is when George III started to go mad. And they were trying to figure out who could take over for him because Parliament couldn't make any decisions until the speech from the throne was made and the king was completely incapacitated. So Georgiana, Georgiana, and Fox were gunning for the prince to have complete unlimited power as the regent, whereas other people were advocating for limited power, saying, you know, let's take that first step, and then later we'll kind of get what we want that way. Um, and it ended up damaging the Whig Party quite a bit because, of course, the king came back from that particular illness, and no one was particularly pleased with how they'd handled the situation. And Georgina was very good at orchestrating these kinds of discussions at the Devonshires' home. This was seen as sort of an, an enclave, not only for romantic interlopers, it was known <laughs> that there were several uh, illicit couples who had interminglings there, but it was also a hotbed of political discussion. She had this knack for drawing people in and getting people from unlikely walks of life to have conversations with each other. And she was almost like the puppet master of these very powerful political men. Dinners at the Devonshire House were a really integral part of many of these elections because it was this nice informal sort of neutral ground. You could invite people and it would look like a social invitation. But then, of course, you could turn it into something more if you wanted which so, she did. <laughs> right. And everyone wanted in, naturally. But, of course, all through this political turmoil, she also had a lot going on in her personal life. And there was one person in her life who made a huge difference, and that was Lady Elizabeth Foster, known as Bess. I'm rolling my eyes. This woman is such a piece of work. <laughs> it's very single white female. She's kind of, <laughs> she's kind of a creepy stalker. Um, she was separated from her husband when she met Georgiana, and he had custody of her children. She had very little money, and since she was the wife of the Earl, she couldn't actually go out and work. So she was in straitened circumstances, to say the least. And she ingratiated herself with the Devonshires and became, as Amanda Foreman describes, the, the keeper of their secrets. And the strange relationship between Bess, as she's known, and the Duke, and G, became a, a very strange type of menage a trois in which, you know, you may call that kind of love triangle forbidden love, but it wasn't. It was permissible. I think while G didn't exactly love the idea of Bess having romantic relations with her husband. <laughs> Who would? Who would? <laughs> she was able to intimately interact with the Duke as a sort of intermediary in, in the bedroom and in conversation. She could convey to the Duke that Georgiana had outstanding debts. She could convey to him other messages from his wife. And because the Duke was such a poor communicator, he could communicate through Bess, who acted as Georgiana's bestie and told her what was going on in his mind. It's just very strange, very strange. She started <laughs> off as this no one and came into their lives and, and stayed there for forever, pretty she much. Did. Yeah, and three she, years after Georgiana died, she actually became the Duchess of Devonshire, which is... <laughs> Thanks, Bess. <laughs> yeah, which is what some say she wanted all along. But she and Georgiana were 
truly good friends. They wrote mm-hmm. impassioned letters to each other, which unfortunately were censored by Georgiana's heirs because Crazy Victorians. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you, Victorians. I do. There may have been more erotic messages in them. No one's really sure if the relationship between them was a sexual one or simply a friendship or maybe both. But the records that exist today are a bit muted because of the people who came through and tried to edit the story to read a certain way. But someone who was always very suspicious of Bess's motives was Georgiana's mother. She never liked the woman, ever. And Lady Spencer was a bit of a piece of work, too. Mm -hmm. She was very, she and Georgiana were very, very close. And that kind of a suffocating relationship, again, sort of like a parallel um, with Marie Antoinette and her mother, the Empress, But she was very self-indulgent, I guess, when Georgiana was a child. And when she was older, had this constant guilt-tripping thing going on, always sending her letters about what she was doing wrong, what she was doing wrong. And Georgiana took it all very much to heart. And, you know, to deal with the guilt from that, she would just go off and gamble more and drink more. And Lady Spencer eventually got into that as well, didn't she? At least the gambling. Right. And Georgiana's other sister, too. But what we see here is a life of decadence punctuated by very important moments of political contribution, cultural contribution. She was a patron of the arts. She was a a patron of wearable fashion and style. And people looked to her as a kind benefactress. She was involved with peace negotiations with France and America. She was involved with the Westminster elections. She was involved with the Regency stuff like we talked about before. She wasn't an idle woman. And with the true grace of a lady, she didn't flash around her contributions. It was understood that the Duchess of Devonshire was a very powerful and well-respected woman. And it was also understood that she had her faults too. But I think that for a long time, one of the reasons she went unacknowledged in history until arguably this great biography by Amanda Foreman came out was that she handled her successes and her accomplishments with such quiet grace. They really went hushed. When people were more interested in the scandalous personal aspects of her life. And like you'd mentioned earlier, she sort of had a chance to come back. That's after she was exiled for her affair with Charles Gray. when she For got, whom Earl Gray teased me. <laughs> which we're big fans of. Um, and she was pregnant with his child. And the Duke said, you know, get out of the country, have the baby and give it up. Or you're never seeing your other children again. And Georgiana had the very difficult decision of choosing, you know, her child was someone she loved very much or her children she already had with the Duke. And she chose her children and he wouldn't let her come back for a couple years. But when she did return, politics was the thing she had. She had her children and she had these political ambitions. And by this time, she had come down with a strange eye infection. Reading about that was painful. (laughs) It was. And I couldn't quite understand, and maybe because her contemporaries didn't understand what exactly was wrong, but she essentially lost one eye and almost lost her vision entirely. And the way that she was treated for the illness left her very visibly changed. And so at this point, like you said, politics was what she had, and she was able to help orchestrate an uprising of the Whig Party again, because they had fallen out of favor with the events of the French Revolution, but she had one final coup left in her. It was time to make a comeback. She successfully helped usher the Whig Party into power. And in 1830, with Charles Gray at the helm, slavery was abolished, and the Reform Act of 1832 was passed. So how about that? That's a pretty major accomplishment, Puppet Master G. (laughs) (laughs) 
Georgiana died at the age of 48, and we think it was from a liver abscess. And she was very much mourned by her children, and oddly, especially by someone like Bess, who immediately, of course, went through all of their correspondence and crossed out all the things that made her look bad. (laughs) And to bring the discussion full circle back to Diana, who we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, many would say that at age 48, this was well before her time. And even though the life expectancy wasn't as long then as it is today, one could arguably say that Georgiana had much left in her to accomplish. But she's a fascinating study and I, I really encourage you, and I'm sure Katie does too, to, Absolutely. to read The Duchess. Or if you're not much of a reader, and we tend not to associate with people like that, to at least <laughs> to at least see the movie to get an idea of the powerful figure that she was. And as always, be sure to look for more articles about the Whigs, the Tories, the French Revolution, and all sorts of government gore on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 